This podcast is sponsored by the Copywriter Underground. It's our new membership designed for you to help you attract more clients and hit 10K a month consistently. For more information or to sign up, go to thecopywriterunderground.com. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts? Ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes, and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work. That's what Rob and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 136 as we chat with copywriter Nikita Morell about helping architects with copy and marketing strategy, her approach to choosing a niche and then narrowing it even further why she created a framework for her process and the role weaving plays in her life and business. Welcome, Nikita. Hey, Nikita. Thank you. Hi. Yeah, we're excited to have you here. You are one of our members of our think tank, so we've been able to witness your business growth. And we're really excited to share what's working because so much is working for you in your business. So let's just kick this off with your story. How did you end up as a copywriter? So um, I started in corporate marketing for L'Oreal and George Western Foods, which is um, Australia's biggest bread brand. Um, And I quite quickly realized this corporate life just wasn't for me. I think it was just all the layers and you know, I just wasn't that great at taking direction. Um, and it was around about this time I was earning a full-time salary. So I was frequenting lots of bars and different restaurants. And, you know, after a night out, my friends would come back and comment on the food or the music or the cute boy sitting on the bar stool. And I would be looking at the copper lights or the, the timber joinery. Um, and I think it was around this time that I just became obsessed with everything design related. I signed up to an interior design diploma and did that as a hobby and learned how to draft and draw floor plans with no intention of becoming an interior designer, just to learn and immerse myself in that world. And yeah, it was just, I think it was around about this time I thought, you know, I there has to be a way to marry marketing and, you know, communications with design and architecture. And I still remember the time I was sitting there reading a commercial architecture magazine and I thought, aha, uh-huh, this is it. I just need to work for this one magazine. And so fast forward six months, I honestly just stalked, politely stalked this magazine. I rang them pretty much every week. I just said, can I please meet you? Are there any job openings? And didn't get much back. And then I think finally just they thought, you know, we just need to get this girl in, just meet her and just see what she's about. And I went in and they said, look, we don't have any positions in the editorial team because I'd been doing a lot of writing. I'd created my own design blog called Distracted by Design and writing for some New York-based design blogs as well. And they said, there's nothing in the editorial team. There's nothing in the marketing team. All we have is a media executive position. And before she had even time to tell me what this position was about, I said, yep, fine, sign me up. When can I start? So a month later, I went into the job and said, I'm here for the media exec. And they said, yep, you're just sitting over there with the sales team. And I just looked at her and said, oh, no, no, it must be some sort of a mistake. I'm not here for sales. And she said, yeah, that's just a fancy, <laughs> that's just a fancy name to what we call sales. And I just, I went white, you know, I'm browning color and I just lost all my color and just thought I don't know how to sell like I've never ever sold anything and so I sat down I for I think six months I just really sucked at this I would go in meet all these furniture designers with the um, goal of selling ad space in this magazine and I would meet yeah furniture designers tapware you know all these different types of amazing people but I would go in there just blurt out my sales pitch, be like, do you want to buy anything? Here's some magazine space. Here are the costs. Thank you. Bye. And never, ever got <laughs> one sale. And I had targets to meet, right? So I think they had their eyes on me and they thought, oh gosh, what have we done? And so I wrote out my resignation letter and I thought, this is just not for me. And so I think this was about nine months in and I had it in my handbag and I thought, tomorrow I'm just going to go resign. But I had a meeting booked and I thought, okay, I'll go to this meeting. Who cares? Don't doesn't matter what happens. But I still remember I walked in and it was this man. He was a timber. He made this beautiful timber furniture. And I just 
spoke to him. I just chatted to him for an hour and a half. I asked him questions about how he started and he took me through his workshop and I just was blown away by his story. And I just thought, oh, you know what? Your story needs to be in our magazine. And without even realizing it, I was obviously selling, um, you know, a solution to his problem and I was gaining his trust and I was creating that personal connection. And I came, you know, I didn't even take my ma- the magazine out of my bag to, or I didn't even mention the ad space, but I came back to my desk an hour or two later and he said, Nikita, I want to buy 12 months of advertising space. And that was my biggest sale. And I thought, okay, I'm just not going to resign today. Maybe I'll give it another week. And I guess the rest is history. For I think I stayed there for another eighteen months and became their highest, you know, um, revenue earner in the in the company. And yeah, after that, I just went to an architecture firm just to get experience on the architecture side because um, I'd done the kind of publishing selling um, as a communications manager. I and that's kind of where my copywriting journey began. So I wrote newsletters and about pages and bios for this one um, big kind of uh, significant architecture company here in Sydney and I thought you know if I can help these guys do this why can't I just help more people so um, I did a course in copywriting and that's kind of when I took the leap of faith and started my own business. I love it and there's so many different things here that led up to you being a copywriter so can we talk a little bit about like what you did as a marketing person, what the role that you had as a marketer. And then of course, the stuff that you were talking about in sales, how that all added up to copywriting as a career choice. Yeah, so exactly. So marketing, um, a lot of what I was doing was at consumer insights. So I would go, especially at the bread company, I'd go into the grocery store for two days at a time and just watch people shop bread. So I'd see how they scan the shelf, whether they squeeze the loaf or choose the loaf behind, you know. So it was, I guess, watching and observing a lot of, yeah, consumer insights. And with that, learning about brand strategy. So understanding, you know, tone of voice and brand values and all those kind of essential marketing, you know, foundation components. And then yeah, that kind of, as you said, naturally fell into selling, um, which I learned that at the end of the day, it's just all about trust. You know, it's just getting someone's trust and then it just makes the sale so much easier. And then those two things combined, I think it just, copywriting was a natural progression. I mean, now I look back and I'm always drawing upon my sales knowledge, always drawing upon my marketing knowledge. It was almost like the third kind of piece of the puzzle and it just, it made sense to combine those two skills into to copywriting. And I'm definitely still learning the art and craft of copywriting, but I think having those two things has definitely helped me. And can you talk about timeline-wise, when did you go out on your own in your business? So it was about two and a half, nearly three years ago. And um, in terms of timing, I started my business and then about six weeks later found out I was pregnant. So it wasn't probably the most ideal timing in terms of that. The pregnancy was a bit of a surprise, but um, it's definitely, it's in a way, I think, I wonder if I had just started this business earlier. Um, But I think, as you said, Rob, like it's taken me these steps to get here. And um, so, yeah. Okay, cool. And what did it look like early on three years ago, whenever you made that jump, how did you start to get clients? And what did you do in those early days to really build the foundation for your business? Sure. So what I did was, is I, um, we'll go into a bit later, but I love textiles and weaving. So I, in the beginning, I would just write to homewares companies and textile designers, lots of rug companies. And just to build up my portfolio and sample pieces, I offered a lot of contra deals. So I had a lot of rugs and lights arriving and I would just in return write an about page or just to kind of get a portfolio going. So from the start, I was always, you know, without even realizing it, I'd kind of selected, you know, quote unquote, like a niche or, you know, Seth Godin says a smallest Bible market. And that was, you know, artists and creatives and that kind of interior design world. So um, I think there came a point where I thought, okay, I can't have any more rugs or pillows on this couch. And I think my partner also said, Nikita, it's time to start paying the bills. I think our house looks pretty enough. So I, <laughs> um, that's when I kind of made the transition and started um, to kind of focus deeper and deeper. And as time has progressed, I have just gone from serving artists and creatives and interior designers now um, to just doing interior designers and architects and now even further to architects. So I think as time goes on, I just keep getting more and more laser focused in who I'm serving. 
Okay, I want to talk more about this because, and we talk about niching quite a bit here on the podcast and in the Facebook group and even in the underground and the think tank. But tell us more about this process, how you decided to keep going narrow because going from, you know, artists and, and creatives to interior design and architects now to architects. And I think even architects uh, at firms of a certain size, like you have continued to niche down. And a lot of people think that every time you niche, you're actually losing uh, audience and potential clients. Have you found that to be the case or how has niching changed your business? Yeah. So I mean, it's definitely been a scary process. Each time I niche further down, I think, um, oh gosh, you know, I'm, am I just risking cutting out more of the market? But for me, I think just specializing in something, it's created more focus for not just who I'm serving, but my whole business. So it means that when I'm making business decisions or I'm writing a you know a LinkedIn post, that like every time I just have that ideal client in mind. And so I'm very, you know, it helps me make business decisions every day. I think put myself into their shoes and I think, well, how are they going to respond to this? And it's really allowed me to go deep into the um industry as well. So I've got a base level knowledge of architecture, for example, but as I meet each client, I can just go deeper and deeper. And um, yeah, so it's not like I'm starting fresh each time. So that's definitely been of help. And I guess in terms of selecting a niche, I think it really comes down to um, your passion. I think a lot of, you know, a lot of times we look at, you know, potential profit of the market or, you know, your existing network or your existing experience. But sometimes, you know, if you want to go down this path and really focus on a specific niche, you need to have that genuine passion. And I think clients can see that when you're just really like, you know, I really want to help you. And at the end of the day, that's kind of the premise of my whole business is I really want to help architects because I think they're doing some brilliant stuff. It's just they don't know how to get themselves out there. So yeah, that passion piece. And especially if you're doing it, you know, you need to be able to do something for at least five years. You can't get bored of it once you pick something so focused um, as well, because it's, yeah, you're doing it day in, day out, the same thing. Okay. So I I would love for you to brag a little bit, because I know that you've had tremendous growth over the last year and you are in demand. I think it's safe to say that, like that you are in demand in your niche and the go-to person to support these companies. Can you talk about what you did to get there? Like beyond niching down, which you've already talked about, what are some of the other changes or like even just like game-changing moments? What have you done to become this much in demand in your business? Well, thank you. But I also think it helps to be, you know, one of not many doing what I'm doing. So that definitely does help. Um, But I would say the biggest game changer was, you know, when I had my daughter, I, um, you know, she's 18 months old now, but when she first came along, I had four to five clients on the go and they were smaller clients. So in terms of smaller, I mean, I was doing jobs, you know, for a lot less thousand dollars here or five hundred dollars there um and managing a lot more clients where when after having her I thought you know this is not sustainable I was getting very overwhelmed and burnt out you know I was always on client calls and just managing too many people so I shifted the structure of my business I did two things number one I started going after more mid-sized firms with bigger budgets so I thought okay if they've got bigger budgets it's my opportunity to offer a different type of service a bit more um one that's a bigger value and I can, um, I guess, charge more. And so that's what I did. So I started going after them. And then number two is I shifted my services um, to become bigger. So pretty much now I just take one to two clients per month and, you know, an average job, which I can, I'm more than happy to talk about in terms of how I structure my services that can come up to, you know, 15 20k so rather than doing those $500 jobs I just thought and again that was a really scary shift I thought well what happens if I can't find these clients but again if you're really focused and you're you know filtering out those clients you don't want and you're attracting the ones you do it it is possible and I think everyone you know can do it if you just find that kind of um, profitable market and you said 20k right 20k per project 
Just making sure yeah. I have it right. Okay. Did you yeah. find yourself getting bored with these kinds of projects, Nikita? Yeah, people ask me that a lot. Um, and to be honest, I know it sounds really nerdy, but I go into these architecture firms and, you know, they are doing very similar things. They're building buildings. They're designing buildings. But what I love is I love going in there and I, I hold these discovery sessions. And by the end of it, every single firm, you know, they and I guess it goes with everything, right? With every copyright as well, but you, they always have a point of difference and it's about distilling and extracting that, that story and that why they're different. Um, and then putting that into words, which is what I love. Um, so it doesn't get boring because it, I go quite deep, you know, I say, well, what makes you different? Is it your process? Is it your design philosophy? Is it the, the background of your firm or the typology you're working in? There's always something different. And of course, the firm in itself with the different people are always different too. But look, I'll be honest, sometimes I do wonder, like I just see a lot of copywriters doing these awesome sales pages and landing pages and I wonder, you know, am I doing real copywriting? <laughs> but, um, you know, it isn't direct copywriting at all. Um, it's more, you know, about pages and bios and taglines. But, yeah, I, I think, you know, there is opportunity in the future to shift. Um, I've been doing, I sometimes take on a project here and there for architectural products, so, you know, timber cladding or roof tiles or something like that, um, which just adds a bit of variety as well. Okay. So tell us how you find clients and what does your onboarding process look like from, you know, either the outreach that you do or for them approaching you until you land them as a client? How do you work through that whole process? Sure. So, I mean, I've got two approaches, but um, so I'm a bit of a prospecting nerd. I love prospecting. <laughs> that sounds really weird, but I'll sit on my computer and, you know, on the couch and I will just trawl through industry blogs and news and I'll see which firms are um, producing some beautiful work or I'll look at industry panel um, conversations and I'll see who the judges are and what firms they belong to. So anyone who's who, you know, is open-minded and you can tell that they've got some sort of a public profile or they're willing to kind of ramp up their marketing. It already shows that they're open-minded to it. So I've actually got a big spreadsheet. Um, so I'm always prospecting. It's not really a task for me. It's just always happening in the background. And that spreadsheet has notes and it's color-coordinated into priorities. So I do a lot of outreach. So, um, for example, one cold email could take me up to an hour and a half, two hours to write um, because I put a lot of effort into personalizing that cold email. You know, I've got a bit of a template, but really it's just trawling through interviews that the firm might have done or where they've been featured or I'll comment on something really specific about their job. And so I do find that a lot of my clients, um, I do get a very high success rate with my cold um, emailing. And then number two, the inbound ones, um, I get a lot of, I, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so I do get a lot of um, direct messages from there. Um, and in terms of onboarding, it's just, I mean, to be honest, I always just kick it off with a call and I don't really put a time limit on it. I probably should just to stay a bit more efficient and productive, but it's just connecting in the beginning. And even my even prospecting, I don't really call it prospecting. It's more just connecting and it's just saying, letting them know this is what I do. Um, and then it usually carries on from there. I want to back up a little bit because we kind of skimmed over this, but you said that you went from projects that were $500 to $1,000 and then you moved to projects that were $15,000 to $20,000. And I feel like that's a big jump in a short period of time, which is less than three years. So can you talk a little bit about this huge um, income increase, pay increase, and like what it really took to do that in your business mindset-wise, structurally? What did you have to kind of rethink? I know part of that is finding better clients who can pay, and you've addressed that you know, with your outreach. But what else does it take, and what advice would you give to other copywriters who are hearing that and are like, I'd like to do that too? Sure. So... Actually, I'll, I um, recently read, you know, Seth Godin's book and he said you need to find, um, you know, you need to fashion a key to the lock. And I think that the, the biggest thing, or I think, sorry, I think it was the other way around, you know, something about the lock and the key. But anyway, so I think the, the biggest thing is, is you, a lot of copywriters, I and, and I was doing this too, I had a list of services. So I said, I do this, 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 and this. And then what happened was is, you know, when clients would come and speak to clients, I said, this is what I offer. Whereas I kind of switched that around and I thought, okay, let me see what these clients need. Um, and then I will 
you know, create services according to that. So even on my website, yes, I've got some services, but every single proposal I make is different. And the biggest way I made this jump was instead of just, you know, selling um, an about page package or, you know, taglines for your website, I kind of packaged it all up. So I've broken my service down now into two phases. I've got my brand and marketing strategy, which is phase one. And then I've got my copywriting, which is phase two. Now, when I go to clients now, it's almost like you, I mean, I would say 85, 9% take both packages. And that's how that jump has happened because within that brand and marketing strategy um, package uh, phase, for example, it includes research. So, you know, that's your basic research in terms of interviewing past clients, looking at their existing collateral, you know, obviously internet searches. I spend a lot of time on Reddit and Quora as well, just trawling through threads um, that architects or their ideal clients have written. Um, Then I do a discovery session, which includes a short presentation as to, you know, why I'm there um, and what this discovery session means. Because a lot of architects, as you can imagine, they're sitting there drawing on and drafting or designing on their desk and then they're called into a meeting and, you know, with a marketing person, they're just kind of like, what am I doing? Why am I here? So it's kind of that why behind what I do. And then we launch into a discovery session, which is a 90-minute just deep dive into their firm and questions sometimes that they have not even thought of, you know, just... I mean, for us copywriters, it's probably quite basic, you know, objections and um, frustrations that their clients might have and it's their values and, you know, their why as why their architecture firm exists. Um, and from there I create, a, I would say it's about a, on average, a 50-page document, which is my brand and marketing strategy document. And that in itself, um, I've tried to make it a, a really quite active guide. I don't want it just to sit on their hard drive, you know, collecting digital dust. I want it to really be of use. So in that guide, it creates, it's got everything from vision and mission. It's got brand values. um, It's got your brand essence, your value proposition. It's got a whole tone of voice guide, which I break up into pillars. And I say, I pull real examples from the company's website. And I said, this is how you're writing now in this tone of voice. This is what it could be. You know, for example, if I say you should use a direct tone of voice and I give them an example, I say do's and don'ts. So it's a quite an extensive document, but it really does take them through and give them that, you know, why they're different um, and who they should be targeting. I do like an ideal client profile and all that. And then, of course, the whole marketing strategy piece, so their marketing objectives and then tactics that they should be doing. So, I mean, I just really want to help architects for them to get the best result possible. So that's that first kind of phase. Um, And then, of course, I present that to them and get feedback. And then the second phase is the copywriting. And that, you know, sometimes it includes over 85 project descriptions. So it's a lot lot of bulk work, um, which I'm learning to kind of um, release and get a bit of help on in terms of subcontractors, which has definitely been able um, to free up my time a little bit more and focus on the more strategic stuff. Hey, we're just jumping into the show today to tell you a little bit more about the Copywriter Underground. Rob, what do you like best about this membership? So this membership community is full of copywriters that are investing in their businesses and taking what they do seriously. Everything is focused around three ideas, copywriting and getting better at the craft that we all do, marketing and getting in front of the right customers so that you can charge more and earn more, and also mindset so that you can get out of your head and focus on the things that will help you be successful at what we do. There's a private Facebook group for the members of the community, and we also send out a monthly newsletter that's full of advice, again, on those three areas, copywriting, marketing, and mindset, things that you can mark up and you know tear out, put them in your file, save them for whatever, and it's not going to get lost in your email inbox. Carol, what do you like about the Copywriter Underground? So I, I love the monthly hot seat calls where our members have a chance to sit in the hot seat and ask a big question or get ideas or talk through a challenge in their business because we all learn from those, those situations. And then I also feel like the templates we include in the membership are valuable because who wants to reinvent the wheel? And Rob and I end up sharing a lot of the templates and resources we use in our own businesses. So I would definitely want to grab those. So if you are interested in joining a community of copywriters that are investing in their business and in themselves and trying to do more, get more clients, earn more money consistently, go to thecopywriterunderground.com to learn more. Now back to the program. Abby Woodcock recently came out with a survey 
and it speaks to um, the pay gap within freelancers and women. I think you can correct me, Rob, is women are getting paid 47 or 46% less than men yep. as copywriters in this space. So for, for someone like you who is charging significantly higher amounts, typically on projects, what advice would you give to any of the women listening who are struggling to charge more, to increase their rates? How were you able to do it? Did you just increase incrementally over time? Or you know, did, did you have a coach on the side? How did you kind of feel comfortable, confident enough to put out a 20K proposal in a relatively short period of time? Sure. So I think it also came down to, yeah, it was definitely a mindset thing. Um, and for me, that shift to you know, asking for more um, money when it came to jobs also came at a time where I realized that I really needed to boost up my perception. Um, So what I did was, is I did invest quite a bit in my business in terms of I got a whole new website, I got professional photography and just little, you know, they're not little things, but it just things that helped me be like, no, this is the value that I'm adding. And um, in terms of that, it definitely helps like to then pitch myself to these bigger clients. I just, I felt more confident, I felt more credible, and I felt like I had more authority to be able to pitch myself um, these bigger jobs and ask for bigger fees. You know, my um, website and all my comms, like all my touch points, I got a graphic designer to make them look. And I know this might sound a bit, I guess, superficial in terms of, you know, but it is a mindset thing. And I think I thought, well, no, look, now this is it. This is, um, I spent actually a lot of time working on my own brand. So I came up with my own tone of voice, I came up with my own brand values. And I think, this is sometimes an area is, you know, we just think we're all we're just one person. We're just one copywriter. We don't need to do this. But I've even got a big document myself for Nikita Morell's brand. Um, and that just gave me, I guess, that confidence. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely was a mindset shift because it was. It was a big jump, but just realizing that, A, I had the audience that were willing, you know, all the target clients that were willing to pay and then B, that, I actually could help them. You know, I started to get really great feedback and some really great testimonials. And I thought, you know, it's, we're adding, as women, we're adding value. So why shouldn't we, um, you know, be paid for it? But yeah, I mean, look, it didn't come easy. It was definitely a mindset and a bit of a struggle in the beginning. Nikita, will you mind talking a little bit about the content that you use to promote your own services? You know, I know you offer a free guide on your website. Obviously, you've created content in the past. Like, how does that impact the sales process and the pitching process that you go through with each new client? Sure. Um, Well, it's actually quite challenging with my audience. Just a little fun fact is that um, in the architecture world, the American Institute of Architects, actually, um, it was illegal. So it was prohibited to market your firm um, until the 1970s. So you couldn't advertise, you couldn't um, send out proposals or do sketches for clients. It was just you put your shingle up on, you know, outside your um, building and, and that was that. So it wasn't up until 1972 that people or architects could start becoming competitive. So this resistance and reluctance to marketing it's definitely been a challenge I've had to overcome. You know, it's meant architecture seen as a gentleman's hobby. So, you know, you go to the golf club or you have a drink with your mates and if you do good work, then the work will come. But as we know, you need to market you know, yourself um, in today's day. So in terms of my business, um, it's been a, quite a struggle to try and, I guess I've got a low level of awareness. So it's trying to educate them. But at the same time, the architects, they don't care really at the end of the day what copywriting techniques or tactics I'm doing or even what marketing is, they just want it done. So in terms of my own marketing, for me, um, I created this free guide um, and the titles changed a lot and and the content too. But uh, at the moment, it's called Five uh, Mistakes Architects Make on Their Website and How to Fix Them. Um, So even if, look, I'm quite honest with myself, even if these architects aren't reading it and taking on the advice, at least it's a way for me to showcase my knowledge and showcase what I can do. So it's about pulling out um, and making them aware of their problems. So it's really that first stage of awareness, like, oh, okay, because sometimes, oh, not even sometimes, I'd say 99% of the time, they they know they need to fix something, but they have no idea. So yes, my free guide's definitely been good just to develop that initial trust and create a bit more credibility for myself and showcase, you know, how I write and what's there. And I definitely recommend 
copywriters doing the same thing if they're not already doing it. I think having a free guide just, I get a lot of inquiries saying, oh, I just read your guide. And so, you know, I don't know how much they read, but at least I'm getting a response. And and the same goes with LinkedIn. Um, that's another platform I've been using to market myself. And I, uh, I create quite, I guess you could say controversial posts um, towards architects. I'm I have a bit of a go at them um, in a in a lighthearted, humorous way, but I kind of I just I really want to point out that you know marketing is is a necessity for their business if they want to start getting more and better clients. Yeah, and I love that. And some of them will resonate and get that, and some of them won't. But you're it's clearly working for you. And um, if for anyone listening, it's worth checking out your website. It's beautiful. And I think what you said about investing in your business, that's that's what gives you that confidence to pitch a 20K project and just checking out your report and your website. It just I can see why it's working and appealing to your audience who cares about aesthetics as much as you do. Uh, I do want to back up a bit because we mentioned the cold email and outreach and that you love prospecting. I think not everyone loves prospecting as much as you, but can you just talk us through some of the elements that you touch on in that cold email um, that, cause clearly it's working. I know you have such a great response rate. So do you have any advice um, to copywriters who really need to improve those cold emails? Sure. I think the biggest thing is I mean, it just can't sound like a cold email. And and I go into it, as I said, I just go into it wanting to connect with an architect. So it's a lot about stroking their ego. Um, so I always, I mean, in terms of structure, I always open it with, you know, something very specific about what they're doing. You know, I'll pull a quote from an interview or, um, and I think that just gets them on board. And, you know, even in my subject line, it's kept very simple, just like love your work. You know I mean? They can't help but open it. They just want to see <laughs> who loves their work. Um, and yeah, and even um, in that cold email, it's, it's not long. So it's just, I know I said I spent a lot of time on it, but that's because I really want to make it personal. I want to resonate with them. And it's even just a small paragraph that I kind of say, this is what I do. And I don't even go into that much detail because right at the end, um, you know, I say, P.S., here's my website. So I know that if they're interested, they'll go off and, and have a look. But another thing um, I've started recently doing, which is really helping with my cold emails is... I'll just hop onto their website and make, you know, a two to three minute website audit um, on video. So I'll just record myself going through their site just really casually. You know, it's almost like a friend to a friend just saying, oh, you know, you could fix this and you could do this. And that video link, you know, can take out a lot of the text, as, you know, all the copy as well because I can kind of introduce myself on the video and, you know, they think, oh, wow, she's made us a personal video. She really wants to work with us. So that's definitely been um, a great little addition as well to my cold emails but again it's just all I really want from that initial cold email is a response so even if they say look we're not interested now or you know that's just an objection which you can of course use to your advantage and um, it's just more information that you can go back with and say okay maybe not now but um, you know and then continue the conversation on from there so it's just yeah I see cold emailing as a conversation starter and I know to be honest, if I hadn't had that sales job at the advertising agency where I had to cold call and cold email, I probably wouldn't feel that comfortable doing it. But over time, I just realized, you know, there's humans sitting on the other end of that screen. And I mean, I'm generally just really want to help them. So if I can showcase that really quickly and show them how I can add value and how I can help their firm, then yeah, at least you'll get a response. So listening to you talk about all of this stuff, your website, your contact strategy, your cold email outreach, it, it, your, the way you charge for your projects, it feels like everything is working really well. Are there, have you made any mistakes? You know, is, is anything not working or has it just been, you know, a sunny ride the whole way? No, definitely not. So yeah, I've definitely come up across a few hurdles. And as I said, my, I mean, architects, if you know one, they're very interesting people. So I do feel like a lot of the time I'm climbing up here, like it's it's a lot of following up, um, which, you know, sometimes can be exhausting. But look, I've made, I mean, for example, um, about, I would say it's about a month ago, I thought, oh, you know, and I did what I tell my clients not to do. I thought, oh, you know, I should really be on Instagram. You know, I, I at the moment, Due to my limited time, LinkedIn is where I think my clients hang out. So that's where I am. But I thought, you know, architects are visual creatures. That's where I got to be. So I honestly spent, I would say, a whole weekend and a week just 
getting all these images together, writing all these captions, you know, putting this whole Instagram page together. And then I just got burnt out. I thought, okay, I just can't do this. So I did waste a lot of time and I've done a little bit of that, you know, along the way, just kind of being a bit impulsive and not really thought strategically about what I'm doing. And I kind of sometimes also, you know, I forget, and I think it's easy for us to forget you don't need hundreds and hundreds of clients. You know, I think I just want every single architect to be my client, but it's impossible and you want the right ones as well. But yeah, it's kind of just definitely just trial and error with me. And um, yeah, I mean, I made a lot of mistakes, but that's just, just one of them. All right. So um, you mentioned that you are working with subcontractors and I know because of all the growth that you've had, you have grown your business. You're also growing your family. Um, So time is scarce. Energy is scarce. Can you just talk a little bit more about what you've done to structurally to help with the growth and take some of the work off your plate and just kind of uh, prep your business so that you can continue to grow and not get burnt out? Sure. So I, um, in terms of, yeah, I realized, um, because in terms of my copywriting, um, jobs, a lot of architecture websites do require, you know, sometimes 30 bios or, you know, biographies or lots of project descriptions. And I found I was spending a lot of time in this, and this was something that I could, you know, subcontract out. So I did, um, struggle in the beginning to find subcontractors that, um, understood, I guess, design. So what I was doing is I was looking for copywriters who had experience writing for architects and designers and, and it worked out well, but then I thought, you know, what happens if I get an architect who enjoys writing, um, would that work? So I flipped it a little bit and now, and that seems to be really working. So now I've got, um, two or three subcontractors that, um, who are architects, but love writing and have a real knack of writing. And it's been great because I've really invested time in training them, um, you know, on tone of voice and on a bit of marketing and um, we have regular Skype calls. So um, they are, it's good because I think they're quite invested in my business as well and they get it. So that takes a lot of the bulk work out of it. So I can really focus on, you know, nailing that kind of value proposition and taglines and, you know, services page, for example, or more of the marketing around it. But yeah, so I mean, I think it's definitely, yeah, been worth bringing on um, subcontractors. As you look back at all of the things that you've accomplished since you launched yourself as a copywriter, can you identify, you know, one or two things that has really made the biggest difference for you? Yes, 100%. It's the Copywriter Club Think Tank, honestly. Um, So I think I joined that, it would have been a year ago now, and that has been the biggest game changer. And I'm not just saying this to make you guys. Yeah, I was going to say that, that question now makes it, it sound like I was begging for that answer, which I wasn't. It yeah. does, Rob. Rob, no. <laughs> no, honestly, it, it really has, you know. Um, and for those of you who don't know much about the think tank, you know, there's just full of brilliant minds and where it just gives you that support system. So often, you know, I can go a whole day without talking to anyone. Um, you know, it feels quite isolating. I work from home um, and we just recently with my growing family moved to um, the bush or, you know, I mean, it's not really that far out of the city, but lots of green. And um, yeah, that think tank, you know, you have a question or you have a concern and it's immediately answered by someone and everyone in there is so generous with their knowledge. Um, and they do, they, we all push each other, I guess, to, to take that next step or to do that next thing. And without that, I think, yeah, I definitely wouldn't be where I am today. So yeah, thank you. Uh, so you mentioned some sub- subcontractors. Again, I just I would love to hear your advice for working with subcontractors. I've worked with many subcontractors. It's not always easy. I've kind of figured it out, but can you give advice as far as what works, what doesn't work for someone who might be new to that process and is trying it for the first time? Sure. So it really is about, I think even before they start writing for you, it's about kind of onboarding them just as you would with a client. So it's, it's about training them, um, or just at the end of the day, it's communication. So even for example, with this, this latest subcontract that's 
subcontractor that's come on board. I spent um, an hour or two on um, Skype just running her through my business, like the why behind it, why I'm doing it. Because, again, you just really want them to get invested in what you're doing. You don't want it just to be another job that they're just ticking off for a bit of cash. You just want them to be like, okay, this is why I'm doing it. And, you know, I gave her the story of my business and how I came about. And I think that emotional investment goes a long, long way. Um, And then in terms of, you know, the nuts and bolts of things, um, you know, with every kind of Google Doc, I'll always create a Loom video just to talk her through when I'm giving feedback. I'll just say, this is where you know, you need to change. And, you know, I think the more feedback, um, sometimes the comments can be misread or misinterpreted. So I think a a good, um, well, it's worked for me is just combining feedback, both with comments and and a video. I'm a big fan of video, as you can see, but it does help. And it's just that regular touching base and and setting expectations as well. And I am quite flexible with them. You know, I I let them um, kind of define it their own boundaries and then or and then with mine so it's compromising as well so okay thank you and um you have created a really beautiful framework everything you create is so beautiful can you share a little bit more about um why you created a framework and how it's helped your your business and help you sell your service sure um well firstly I just like to note that I think sometimes with your audience um having pretty things does help um (laughs) I know that my audience are very quite dis- discerning with what they see, so I've made it a point to make sure that all you know, everything I put that out there is is nicely designed. But um, back to frameworks, I first um, fell in love with frameworks after listening to Mel Abraham's um, you know think uh, TCC podcast, as well as um, we had a think tank, I think masterclass with him, and everything about frameworks just resonated with me and it has been a complete game changer I really highly highly recommend just looking into frameworks because for me it gave me structure um, and it appealed to I guess that logic logical side and the emotional side of my audience so what it did was is it allowed me to you know for example my framework is called um, the architect's blueprint to you know brand strategy is one of them and it just gave me a visual way to kind of create a mental picture in my prospective client's mind to take them through my process. So I've got about, I think, five frameworks going at the moment, Um, but this specific one was talking them about the how, so how I work. So rather than me just, you know, on a sales call or even in the discovery session saying, well, this is the process, this is how I work, just in words, it gave them something to look at um, and it stepped them through the journey. You know, stage one, we'll do the discovery process, session stage two will these are your deliverables stage three is the feedback and revision process so it just um, invested them in my process a little bit more and it just I think yeah at the end of the day just provides structure so um, in all honesty when I first heard about frameworks I think I had to re-watch the video like four or five times to get my head around it I just didn't really know but then when it clicked I thought okay this is it's a really great way of um, yeah organizing your information um, in a visual way as well. And the reaction that you get from your clients to the framework, is it, I assume it's positive? Yeah, it's positive. And I think the reason for that is that you're taking them through something step by step by step. So you're showing them the value of each step and you're building it up into the bigger picture and the bigger idea. So rather than just starting with that big idea and saying like, I'm going to deliver this, this and this, you're just saying, okay, well, it's like, you know, that idea of like little yeses. So yeah, we'll do this. Is that okay? Yep. Okay. Well then we'll move to this. And then, yeah, it's just that, that building, the building blocks and architects love buildings. So it just works out. I like it. So I want to shift the conversation just a little bit. You are also a weaver. You mentioned that when we first started talking and you do these uh, beautiful, I, I don't know if they're cotton or they're wool, but these wall hangings and, and these uh, tapestries, and I guess for lack of a better word, like tell us about that and what that gives you, you know, as far as your business and your, you know, what satisfaction do you get? Um, yeah. So I started weaving um, after a really bad breakup in my early twenties. I just needed a positive place to put my emotions and energy um, so I directed it towards yarn and textiles. And the funny thing is, is it is just, it was the perfect medium. You know, I've, I've always been quite creative, but you know, paints and that you need good light and it can be quite messy. Whereas 
textiles you can just pick up and put down. So over time, um, my weaving practice has progressed and now I've got a big Japanese floor loom. Um, But for me, it just offers, I guess, a quiet time. You know, we're always tapping or texting or swiping. And for me, this idea of just sitting down at my loom, usually um, I don't put music on or I don't listen to anything. It's just silence. And just touching and using my, you know, my sense of touch, like tactile, um, I guess, to really create something. Um, It gives me a creative outlet and it does help. I think it helps my copywriting and my business because it's just, it allows me to Um, I guess explore my creativity without any expectations and it reminds me just not to keep judging myself you know I just sit on the loom and I weave and um, I think when I sometimes have a mental writing block or that I can sit down weave for a few you know whether it's in five minutes and then come back to it so it offers a creative outlet I guess and I think it's a yeah it's quite valuable and it's a big part of my life as well. So if I want to get started weaving what do I need to do or get? Do I need a big breakup or like, is there a weaving class or what would you recommend to a newbie weaver? Well, you probably have to give up the violin. I have to give up the violin. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Um, I'm not giving up the violin yet. I probably will in like six months, but I do want to, I want, it sounds lovely. So I'd like to start weaving. Oh, Kira, I would definitely teach you. Um, (laughs) I should do a little weaving workshop. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so I actually, the way I stumbled into, I didn't even know what weaving was. I just was, you know, heartbroken and went on to Etsy and just saw, you know, these looms and they're so cheap. I think it was like $15 or something. And I had no idea how to use it, what to do. But, you know, the beauty of YouTube, I just, and this is back probably when weaving hadn't really taken off, but there was one or two videos out there and I just taught myself it. Actually, a, a funny story or a, kind of a weird story is that I only just recently found out, so this is after seven years of weaving, that all my ancestors um, back in India were weavers. No so way. It's kind of, yeah, so wow. it's a bit freak. My grandfather told me he knew all this stuff about weaving and I just thought, what? And he was like, yeah. And then, yeah, so apparently they were weaving saris and that in Ahmedabad, Gujarat. So oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, anyways. <laughs> all right, so... Um, I'll get on that. And my, my other question, my other question is, uh, this is more for me. So you, you know, again, you have a young family, you have a baby on the way, you've got a lot and you've got a growing business, a lot of momentum. Do you have any advice for other parents who are in a similar situation? How, how do you manage it all and stay healthy and sane other than weaving? Weaving is definitely a factor here. So I'm looking into that. But other than that, what else are you doing? Yeah, so I'll be honest. It, um, yeah, so I've got a, another baby due in June, so I'm on a bit of a hard deadline to get you know, my business, <laughs> business baby proofed. But it, it definitely has um, been a bit of a like it's been yeah it's been hard and it has been a bit of a struggle to adapt. You know, before I had my babies, I was um, very routine and scheduled and structured. But I think in one word, it really takes flexibility. Um, and I just had to become more flexible. You know, babies aren't robots and they're not going to nap when you want them to and that. So it's been that flexibility as well as um, I found, for me, I found it quite difficult um, really drawing the line between work and being a mum. And, you know, with that, I work two and a half days. So when I'm on at work, I'm on now. But I actually, on my days off with her, I try and be really present because I think, in the beginning when I was kind of adapting to this whole, you know, motherhood thing, I would have one eye on my inbox when I was at the playground and I just, I was thinking about client issues or dramas while I was with her and I just thought I'm not doing either one justice. So it's just, um, I read, I think it was um, Chet Holmes, you know, the ultimate sales machine and he mentions one of his little tips is, you know, if you can't reply to an email right then and there, then you shouldn't be looking at it, you know, otherwise you're just wasting time rereading, readdressing emails. So, now on those days off, I turn off all my notifications and it's, it's literally, I that's it. I'm, I don't look at anything work-related and then when I'm at work, you know, I shift into that gear. But I think, I think it's a muscle too. You know, it's like when you put your joggers on and you go for a run, it's just when I sit down now, there's no time to procrastinate. It's just like that muscle needs to be switched on and I'm there, I'm working. So it has been a juggle um, but and, you know, a bit of adapting but 
I'm slowly getting there and I am a bit nervous that I'm going to lose momentum um, once this baby comes. But Kira, you've, and Rob as well, you both, you know, have told me that it's possible and both of you have successfully done it. So <laughs> I'm looking to you guys to help me through it. It is possible. It is possible. You might go a little crazy along the way, but it's totally possible um, with weaving and the violin. Um, <laughs> okay. So, and you also said, you mentioned it here, we haven't talked about this, but you're working two days a week. Is that right? Two and a half. Two and a half days a week. A little extra half, yes. But that's a really, that's incredible. I mean, to bring in the projects that you're bringing in and the amount that you're bringing in um, per month with these projects with two and a half days of work. So it's really uh, encouraging to see that you really can set your own schedule and land these big projects and build your authority um, that it's really possible. So that's really cool. Um, My last question for you is just what... What is ahead for you other than, well, other than, other than the baby? No big deal. I guess it's pretty big. Um, what else is business-wise is ahead for you? What else are you building over the next, next few years? Yes, I think, um, well, number one, I'm definitely want to keep building my authority. So I've been, you know, pitching for a lot of um, speaking gigs. I'm talking next week at Sydney Design Festival on a panel, um, which would be really good um, just to get in front of architects. And I do that a lot. I go to a lot of industry architect events and most of the time I don't know what they're talking about, but, you know, I'm the only copywriter in the room, so it does help. Um, but also another thing I really want to build into my business is I'd love to explore the idea of creating some products. Um, perhaps you know some project description templates or something that you know if an architect doesn't have the budget all the time to you know do a big project they can just kind of do it themselves and I can guide them and help them that way so as I've said like I just I really want to help architects Um, I think they're brilliant so I want to do whatever I can Um, and I guess my business will keep evolving as their needs keep evolving and yeah I just, I have to say, I admire so much about your business, Nikita, the way that you've focused in on a niche, the kinds of projects that you take on, the way that you've structured it so that, you know, you get the help that you need. I just think there's so much that you're doing right and, and you deserve a ton of credit in the way that you've really thought through how you approach your market and the way that you serve them. And so, you know, congratulations on that. If people want to connect with you, learn more about you, figure, you know, follow what you're doing and, and try to maybe do it in their own niches, where would they go to connect with you? Sure. So probably um, the best place is to find me on LinkedIn. I'm always on there. Um, so yeah, just look up Nikita Morell um, and you'll see me standing up against a building. It's my profile. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't be missed. All right. Great. Thank you so much. This is, I continue to learn from you and um, this has been really enjoyable. So thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks Nikita. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode. Thank you.